Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Killer Astrology, the podcast. I'm your host, Laura, and today we're talking about one of the most infamous killers of all time, the one and only Ted Bundy. And please, God, let's hope he remains the one and only because the last thing this world needs is another pompous, murderous lunatic like him. Ted Bundy has kind of been the center of attention in the true crime serial killer world since the 1970s when he was active, but there are so many twists, turns, and little details to this case that I feel like there's always more to learn. I'm going to start his story from the very beginning, and we'll go chronologically from his early life, to his murders, to his trial, and then to his death. Then, as always, we'll get into the astrology. Let's get started. Theodore Robert Cowell was born on November 24, 1946, in Burlington, Vermont. Having lived in the Burlington area myself, it's hard for me to imagine that someone so heinous came from such a beautiful place. But I'm always struck by that when I watch serial killer documentaries and learn about these stories and see what the surroundings look like. But that's life. It's about duality, and beauty really can't exist without darkness. And the truth is that there's a lot of pain everywhere. There's pain in Vermont. There's poverty, homelessness, drugs, suicide. It exists no matter what the surroundings look like. And for Ted's family, that pain was certainly not absent before his birth or after. His mother, Eleanor Louise Cowell, was pregnant in the mid-1940s and was unmarried at the time. Of course, this was not a highly desirable position to find yourself in as a young woman in that era. So she lived in a shelter after Ted was born, and to put it frankly, really didn't want to keep her baby. But her father, Samuel, Ted's grandfather, convinced her to keep him, and she obliged and wound up moving to Philadelphia, where her father and extended family were located. Although the whole family was together, it was certainly not a happy home. The Burlington Free Press reports that in the early years of his life, Ted was likely abused by his grandfather, who was known in his community to be a violent man with a bad temper. His abusive side was certainly seen, but there may have been an even darker side to Samuel that his reputation didn't reflect. It's been suggested that Ted's grandfather actually raped his daughter, Ted's mother, which resulted in Ted's conception. While that isn't confirmed, it wouldn't surprise me in the slightest, given what seems like a long family history of trauma in Ted's family, and also Ted's astrology. Regardless of whether or not incest was occurring in the Cowell line, Ted's grandfather did pass something else along, an interest in dark sexual content. When Ted was very young, Samuel exposed him to graphic pornography, and Ted maintained an interest in that throughout his life. Whatever went on in Ted's household, it affected him significantly and was noticeable in his behaviors even as a young child. When Ted was around three years old, his aunt woke up to see him putting knives around her bed. It seems that the family didn't seek guidance about this or any other strange behaviors from Ted, which is unfortunate because I really think some psychological intervention could have changed who he became. But then again, this was the late 40s, early 50s, and mental health was certainly not at the top of everyone's list. So, Ted Bundy went on to become Ted Bundy and continued to experience reminders of his difficult past throughout his childhood. Not long after the knife incident, Eleanor moved with Ted to Tacoma, Washington, where she soon met and married John Bundy. Even though John adopted Ted and changed his last name to match his, 
there was a lot of tension between Ted and his stepfather, and honestly between Ted and the rest of his family as well. Ted despised the fact that he didn't know his legitimate father, something he didn't learn until sometime later in his childhood. Before he moved to Washington, he believed that his mother was his sister and his grandparents were his parents. So imagine his surprise when he's presented with his birth certificate and sees the word unknown in the space next to the father category. The illegitimacy of his birth wasn't a secret in Ted's family, and he received harsh mockery even from his own cousins. The feeling of being unwanted likely only grew for him when his mother and stepfather later had four children while he was growing up. The legitimacy of his birth wasn't the only thing that Ted was teased for growing up. He also had a speech impediment, which wasn't unnoticed in school. He's reported to have been a shy child and became even more withdrawn in high school, but he still really wanted to be liked, or at least he wanted to impress, maybe they meant the same thing to him. One way he tried to gain attention was by having fancy things and creating a certain outward appearance that his peers would admire. But his stepfather worked a blue-collar job to support their family of six, and Ted couldn't always get what he wanted. Another way that Ted tried to impress was by showcasing his intelligence, but he was really just an average student at best, and his attempts to be the expert in front of his peers didn't gain him much appreciation. He did go on to college, though, and started at the University of Puget Sound in 1965. The actual timeline of his college years is a little fuzzy for me, but what I know is that he transferred twice and actually dropped out for a short time in 1968. But to me, the important thing about his college experience is that in 1967, he began dating a classmate named Diane Edwards, who he was very much in love with. But she dumped him after she realized that he was slacking off, and she wanted to be with someone with more focus and more ambition. Now, for someone who only wanted the appreciation of others, it probably really hurt Ted to be dumped. And it could have been, at least in part, Diane's scorn that ultimately motivated Ted to get back into school after his time away. He wound up graduating from the University of Washington with a degree in psychology in 1972, and then he decided he wanted to go to law school. But he initially wasn't accepted into any of his top choices, so he started taking classes again at the University of Puget Sound. Somewhere around this time, he reunited with Diane Edwards, his first love. While he had used the years since their breakup to find a steady track in life, the relationship didn't last, and the two broke up again in September of 1973. In my mind, there's no coincidence that his first reported murder was just four and a half months after the breakup. At 5.30 a.m. on the morning of February 1st, 1974, Barbara Little awoke to the dreaded sound of an alarm clock that was ringing and ringing and ringing from beside her sweetmate Linda's bed. When the ringing became too incessant, she finally got up herself to turn off the alarm. But that's when she noticed that Linda wasn't in her bed. She didn't worry too much. I mean, after all, it's not that uncommon for a 21-year-old college senior to spend the night out. But later that day, Linda wasn't at work, and she didn't show up to a dinner that she had planned with her family. So after getting worried calls from Linda's boss and Linda's parents, her sweetmates decided to poke around her room. What they found was surprising and concerning. Linda's bedsheets were missing, 
and what was left of them was bloodstained. Linda's remains were found about a year later on top of Taylor Mountain, where Ted Bundy actually wound up burying other victims of his. And although Ted Bundy lived just three blocks away from Linda at the time of her death, nobody knew that he was the killer until he confessed to her murder in 1978. And this wasn't the only one of Ted's murders that stumped authorities in the mid-1970s. Between February 1974 and November of that same year, Ted got away with 10 murders, eight in Washington and two in Utah. That's one murder per month if you do the math, and it doesn't include another victim named Karen Sparks, who would have been his first victim, but she managed to survive after Ted beat her unconscious in her bedroom on January 4th, 1974. Now at this time, Ted had a new girlfriend, Elizabeth, who started putting the pieces together. She would notice that Ted would go away, and then a little while later, a new body would turn up in that area. So she called the police three separate times in 1974 to share her suspicion about Ted's involvement. And even with three different tips from someone very close to him, Ted wasn't caught. Over the course of 1974, Ted had become increasingly confident with each murder he completed and got away with. He even lured a victim towards him in the parking lot of a Seattle beach and used his real name to do it. This incident made his first name and his appearance known to the police, but the crimes were still not tied to him. Things took a little bit of a turn on November 8, 1974, when Ted abducted a young woman named Carol LaRanche at a Utah shopping mall. He approached her in the mall and impersonated a police officer, stating that someone was trying to break into her car and that he would drive her to the police station to make a report. So Carol got into Ted's car, but the police station was not their final destination. Ted drove her away from the shopping mall in broad daylight and took her to a school parking lot where he attacked her in his vehicle. Remarkably, Carol managed to escape and shared a description of Ted's vehicle, which we know was a tan Volkswagen Beetle, with the police. At this point, Ted knew that he was in hot water, and he decided to run. He fled to Colorado and didn't even try to keep a low profile there. While he was there, in January of 1975, Ted took the life of Karen Campbell, a young nurse who was on a weekend skiing trip with her family. After that, he killed four more women, one in March, one in April, one in May, and one in June of that year. Two of those murders were in Colorado, and two were in Idaho. Even with four more murders under his belt, Ted still didn't raise any eyebrows, until one August night when he was driving on a Utah highway, and police attempted to pull him over for a minor traffic violation. I say attempted because Ted, with all his confidence and impulsivity, took the cops on a brief chase before finally giving in. After this, police searched his vehicle and found some suspicious items, including gloves, a ski mask, and handcuffs in his car. But when he got back to the station, police determined that they didn't have enough evidence to hold him, and he was let go. But Ted wasn't free for too much longer because police began putting the pieces together in the case of Carol LaRanche's abduction. They wound up asking Ted to be a part of a lineup, and in September of 1975, Carol identified him immediately. He was arrested in October of that year, 
put on trial in 1976, and then convicted and sentenced to 15 years in prison. But the story is far from over. You see, in September of 1975, around the time that Ted participated in that police lineup, he had just sold his Volkswagen Beetle in an attempt to cover up his murders. But police were able to get the car back from the new owner and swept it for evidence. In his car, police found hairs from multiple women and started tying him to their murders, starting with Karen Campbell, the first woman he killed in Colorado. When Ted's trial began, the media got involved, and he had multiple interviews with news outlets where he asserted his innocence, shared his legal knowledge, his psychology knowledge, and won people over with his smile. This was the performance that he had tried so hard to put on in his childhood to impress his peers. Only this time, it worked. People were shocked that this all-American boy, as the New York Times would later call him, could be pegged not only for abduction, but for a series of brutal rapes and murders. But this is one of America's longtime problems. We've been trained to judge books by their covers, and this cover happened to be especially attractive and persuasive. After the abduction trial was over, Ted began serving his sentence. But he was also busy preparing for another trial, his murder trial. Ted told prison staff that he wanted to review legal information to prepare for his case. To do this, he was allowed to use the library above the courthouse, and while he was there, for the most part, he was left alone to study. But this is exactly how he managed to escape from jail in June of 1977, by hiding in the library and jumping out of the second-story window. When he hit the ground, broken ankle and all, he ran out into the Colorado wilderness, where he managed to live for five days before he was discovered and then taken back to prison. But Ted only remained in jail for five more months, because in December of 1977, he escaped again by gouging a hole in the ceiling of his jail cell, climbing through, and then walking out of the building. Prison staff didn't even notice his absence until the following day, which gave him enough time to get far, far away. He managed to get a ride to the airport and bought a plane ticket to Chicago. From Chicago, he took a train to Michigan and then stole a car, which he drove to Atlanta, Georgia. And from there, he was able to board a bus to Tallahassee, Florida, where he stayed for two months and in true Ted Bundy fashion, picked up right where he left off with his crimes. In January of 1978, Ted raped and killed two Florida State University students inside their sorority house, where he also beat two other young women who miraculously managed to survive. Just one month after the sorority house incident, Ted was tied to the murder of a 12-year-old girl in the area. Fortunately, it wasn't long until Ted was caught after these murders. He was arrested for driving a stolen vehicle while driving erratically in Pensacola. And unsurprisingly, he was driving his stolen vehicle with fraudulent documents. When he went to jail, it was two days before he finally told cops who he really was. Theodore Robert Bundy, serial rapist, murderer, and prison escapee. Because he was now a flight risk, and it was too risky to move him out of state, Ted spent the rest of his life in Florida and began undergoing multiple trials for his crimes. Again, his case received media attention and was widely televised, and this incited loads of public interest. Ted Bundy actually wound up having groupies of sorts, women who were intrigued by him or attracted to him and wanted to meet him. 
Women even came dressed up to his trial in hopes that he would notice them. But much to their dismay, I'm sure, Ted actually had eyes for somebody else. Her name was Carol Ann Boone, and he had known her from his time working in Washington. Carol came to his trial and was completely convinced of his innocence. The two soon became romantically involved, and probably because Ted took advantage of having someone on his side, the two got married while Ted was on trial for murder. Ted proposed to her on February 9th, 1980, and he was going to be sentenced the next day on February 10th. So my theory is that he proposed to her and got married in order to interrupt the trial in some way, or in order to gain more sympathy from the audience. If this was Ted's intention, it didn't work out in his favor. Ted had actually been representing himself in court after a disagreement with his lawyer. And while he had this background in legal knowledge, his behavior was erratic and did nothing to help him. He was ultimately found guilty and given the death sentence for his crimes. Going to jail and being put on death row didn't get in the way of Ted's and Carol's relationship. Carol came to visit Ted on a pretty regular basis and sometimes smuggled him some drugs on her way. And together, the two had a daughter. I can't find any information on their daughter, who they named Rosa, and that's probably a good thing, because I cannot imagine going through life as Ted Bundy's daughter. After Rosa was born, Ted was, of course, still in jail. But in 1984, he tried to escape again by trying to cut through the bars in his cell window. Prison staff found mirrors in his cell that they suspected he was using to escape, and they were able to put a stop to it. After that incident, it doesn't seem that Ted ever tried to escape again. Instead, he wound up taking the next five years to confess to his crimes. He spoke with FBI agents to tell his story and provide insight into how murderers think. If you haven't yet seen the Ted Bundy tapes on Netflix, I suggest that you watch it. You'll hear Ted's own account of his early life and his motivations. But there's another way to find out what made him tick. And you guessed it, it's astrology. Let's go there now. Ted Bundy was born on November 24, 1946, at 10.35 p.m. in Burlington, Vermont. He has a Sagittarius sun, a Sagittarius moon, and Leo rising. Ted's Sagittarius moon is in 17 degrees of the sign, and if you're totally caught up on this podcast, you may notice that his moon is very close to John Haig's and Ed Gein's 19 degree Sagittarius moons. The reason for this is a little bit complicated, but I'll try and simplify it. Each sign encompasses 30 degrees of the zodiac wheel, and those 30 degrees can be further divided into increments of 10. While each sign as a whole is ruled by a specific planet, for Sagittarius, it's ruled by Jupiter, each of those increments, called a decan, is secondarily ruled by another planet. The first decan is always ruled by the sign's natural ruler, but the second and third decans have a secondary ruler. This means that any planet situated between the 10th and 30th degree of a sign will take on a slightly different expression, an expression that's colored by the secondary ruler. Both 17 degrees and 19 degrees fall within the second decan of Sagittarius, and the secondary ruler of that decan is Mars. Now, Sagittarius is already free-spirited, confident, and expansive, 
And when you combine that energy with the impulsive warrior energy of Mars, you get an intense burn it down now, deal with the consequences later type of energy. Ted's moon was ruled by this energy, just like Ed Gein's and John Haig's moons. The moon represents what makes us feel comfortable and at home. With moons in the second decan of Sagittarius, all three of these killers found solace in spontaneous expression of impulse. When Ted committed a murder, he did so with this explosive expression of, well, evil, and it made him feel alive and healed in some way. And because of that, he was drawn to seek it out again and again and again. Now, all three of these killers had other things going on in their charts that were also indicators of violence. For Ted, he had a Sagittarius stellium, which included Mars, which is more of that tendency towards impulsivity, and his south node, which are his old tendencies. It was natural for Ted to express himself in this spontaneous way, And even though he could have used his lifetime to change that pattern, the abundance of planets in Sagittarius made it really hard for him to do that. But there's even more confounding factors here. So I mentioned that Ted had a Sagittarius stellium, which of course is true, but he also just has a fourth house stellium. So his fourth house starts with his IC, the karmic point in your chart, and his IC is in Scorpio. Then he has Venus and Mercury both in Scorpio, retrograde, and then his Sun, his South Node, his Mars, his Moon, and his Black Moon Lilith all in the fourth house. The fourth house is the house that rules our inner world, our psychology, our home, both in the internal sense and the external sense. To have all of these energies in your house of psychology I mean, it's totally overwhelming. And so I think there was a lot going on within Ted that he just wasn't in touch with. And it started with this difficult childhood that I think is represented by Venus and Mercury, both retrograde. Okay, I have to admit that I've been waiting to say this for kind of a while, but I've noticed a really strong correlation between Mercury retrograde and liars. Now, I'm not saying that everybody with Mercury retrograde in their chart is a liar. That's certainly not the case. But there is definitely a correlation. And I think it has something to do with the fact that when Mercury's retrograde, it's a little bit closer to Earth. And so the signal is stronger. If you have Mercury retrograde in your chart, you may be either more easily able to understand the signals you're getting and giving out, or you may be confused by them. Sometimes when things are too close, we don't see them clearly. So I think there's three different ways that Mercury retrograde can operate in the chart of a liar. Number one is that the boundaries of true and false can get blurred, and people may lie without realizing they're doing it or without understanding the impact of their lie. The second way is that Gemini energy of Mercury may just be really strong, and people may be easily able to see both sides of a situation, so much so that they understand that nothing is either true or false, it all just is. The third way is that Mercury retrograde people may have a better understanding of how others communicate. They might see how others think and know their patterns so well that they can use their knowledge to manipulate. I think this was likely Ted Bundy's situation. If you've ever talked astrology with me before, you probably know that I could discuss my Mercury retrograde theory for the rest of my life. I may even write a book about it one day. Who knows? But for now, I have other things to discuss about Ted Bundy's chart. 
Ted's 12th house placements are really important for understanding who he was and what he did. He has Saturn and Pluto both in his 12th house in Leo in about a 5-degree conjunction. In order to understand their impact on him, let's take a look at the 12th house and what it really means. So let's pretend you're at a company holiday party and you work at a big corporation and about 100 people show up to this party. Some of them you know, some of them you don't. Some of them you've heard of before, and some of them are completely new to you. But you're all there together. And your company has decided to do a grab bag for the holidays. So each person has come with a gift that they bought based on their own preferences, financial status, previous experiences, interests, you name it. And everybody drops that gift that's riddled with their own unique perspective into a bag. So that bag now contains everyone's gifts and everything that those gifts signify. This bag is the 12th house in astrology. Now it's one thing that the bag is even at this party, but the next step is to play the game. Some people at the party choose not to pick a gift, and that's okay. Those are people who don't have planets in their 12th house, but they're still affected by the 12th house. They still all came to the party, maybe even contributed a gift, and were exposed to the game to begin with. Other people have made the brave decision to walk up to the bag and reach blindfolded into it and pull something out. They've decided to own something, to take something that was given by somebody else and start using it in their own way, while displaying it to the whole room. Whatever the person picks out becomes their 12th house planet. So you see, every planet in the 12th house is the representation of so much more than meets the eye. People with 12th house planets have chosen to take something that was shared and make it their own, to bring something up from the depths of the unknown and into the material world, into their life. Ted chose Saturn, the planet of social norms and structures and laws, and Pluto, the planet of hard truths, death, destruction, and rebirth. Ted was destined to learn about these themes in his lifetime and to play them out somehow. He was charged with taking them from the realm of the unseen and bringing them out into the open. He certainly did that, albeit in a way that was harmful to many other people and to himself. Had he actually become a lawyer, he may have been able to play out these themes in a way less destructive way. But that's not how his life played out. Having 12th house placements is kind of a big responsibility because it requires some level of introspection, meditation, awareness, and spirituality. With fire signs galore in his fourth house and a couple of retrogrades, settling down enough to get in touch with these parts of himself just wasn't going to happen for Ted. He didn't know how. He certainly wasn't taught those skills. We all have agency over how we use our energies, but we can only use the tools we've acquired, the strategies we've been taught. Ted had no strategies. His life began in a place of manipulation and illusion, and he was never taught a different way. So his 12th house planets played out in a manner that followed suit. Now this isn't an excuse for him by any stretch. He could have developed enough awareness to recognize what was going on and to seek out strategies, but he didn't. One thing that's important to remember is that Ted's actions, horrible as they were, did have an effect on law enforcement in the positive. He gave invaluable information about his motivations to the FBI, 
and they were able to use this information to better understand and catch other killers. So in a really vile and twisted way, Ted at least partially fulfilled his destiny, what he came here to do. Is that to say that he won't have some intense karma to deal with in his next life? Absolutely not. I hope he does. But he did kind of check off some of his pre-life to-do list boxes. By the end of his life, Ted had killed at least 36 women, probably more. His astrology chart represents challenges he dealt with that moved him in this direction, but it doesn't excuse his behavior. We all have the capacity to overcome our challenges and turn them into positives. That didn't happen for Ted, and it didn't happen to the killer in our next episode either. Tune in next week for the scoop on another notorious criminal. Until then, remember, people may lie, but the stars never do. If you like what you heard today, please share this episode with your friends and consider leaving a five-star rating. You can follow the podcast on social media using the information in the episode description. Visit my website, killerastrologypodcast.com, for reference information for each episode and more.